Before you listen to this podcast, just a quick word on some special offers for PTO listeners. For a short time only, new $8 patrons can get a free copy of Bhaskar Sankara's The Socialist Manifesto and a 50% discount on a one-year subscription to Tribune magazine. New $5 patrons can get 50% off a Tribune subscription and all new $3 patrons of the show can get 70% off any new ebook from Repeater Books. Their many excellent titles include Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization by Grace Blakely, K-Punk, The Collected and Unpublished Writings of Mark Fisher, and Abolish Silicon Valley by Wendy Liu. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Andreas Malm. We spoke about his new book, Corona Climate Chronic Emergency, War Communism in the 21st Century. We spoke about why in the case of COVID-19, most of the rich countries of the North were able to make the kinds of aggressive, decisive interventions that seem to elude them when it comes to climate change. We also talked about the experience of the Bolsheviks during the Russian Civil War and why war communism is a better model for the kind of mobilisation needed in the climate crisis than the usual invocation of the ramping up of industrial production by the Western Allies during World War II. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is a little over £2. Andreas Malm is a scholar of human ecology teaching at Lund University in Sweden. He's the author of The Progress of This Storm and Fossil Capital, which won the Isaac and Tamara Deutsche Memorial Prize. Unfortunately, the sound quality of today's interview isn't great, uh, but PTO will be changing the way episodes are recorded towards the end of this month, so hopefully new episodes will have more consistent sound. In any case, Andreas's book is an extremely important intervention on COVID-19 and climate, so I hope you'll stick with it. You begin the book by talking about the relationship between COVID-19 and the climate crisis, and you pose the question as to why the rich countries of the North responded, albeit with delay and prevarication in many cases, in a fairly aggressive manner by imposing lockdowns, in some cases nationalising private health providers and, and forcing corporations to produce emergency goods. So why, in your view, did we see this rapid aggressive intervention in the economy, whereas on the issue of climate, we instead see this perpetual slow drift towards catastrophe and highly ineffective reform measures, often market-based, whereas in the case of the lockdowns, this is clearly a, a very aggressive intervention on a non-market basis. I think there are several different explanations, but one factor is probably that this pandemic had the strange profile of spreading and hitting rich people at an early stage, to put it crudely. So someone like Boris Johnson getting sick and being in hospital for this pandemic was a kind of a symbol of how at an early stage, 
this catastrophe struck some of the most uh, affluent and, and powerful and normally protected people on Earth. And the climate crisis, of course, has the complete opposite profile, where the people that have suffered first from that crisis have been people at the bottom of the rung of global class society, far away from northern centers of power, people of color. It's similar in that the pandemic, as it unfolds, hits the, the same kind of people with much greater force. If you look at Brazil, for instance, it, it was rich people who flew in with a virus and uh, contracted it first, but then they shed it onto working black people who now die in the greatest numbers. But the temporal uh, logic is different in that rich people contracted the, this virus at a very early stage. And that, I think, is one reason that the response was so different. Another reason is that coronavirus arrived all of a sudden with great shock and force and saturated everything, whereas global heating has been going on for decades. And the uh, dominant class factions that have an interest in preempting any kind of mitigation of the climate crisis have had a long time to do so and sabotage mitigation efforts and build up entrenched resistance against any kind of action on the climate crisis. Here, everything happens so quickly and suddenly. There's no possibility of adaptation. Yeah, in the initial stage in March, when the lockdowns were en enforced in Europe, business interests didn't respond with a concerted effort to stop those, those lockdowns. They just went along with it and hoped that it would be over soon. So they, there was no time for them to build up any kind of resistance, if it, indeed it wasn't their interest, as they, they did or have been doing for decades when it comes to the climate crisis. These are some of the factors, but there are others as well, for sure. So would it be your contention then that if the virus had hit the South first, then countries of the North would have simply pretty much ignored it, applied some mitigation at ports and at airports and so on, but effectively the virus would have been allowed to let rip in the South? Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. I mean, that's exactly what happened with HIV in, in sub-Saharan Africa or, or with, with Ebola. or That's exactly what's happening with global heating. As long as it's something that's uh, f impacting the rest of the Earth who always seem to have one disaster or another, it, it will be allowed to fester. That's the way, I guess, politics works in our world. So I, I think there's little doubt about that. But if it would have worked in the way that, you know, it would have attacked poor countries first and then subsequently come to Europe, probably there would have been lockdowns at some point in our countries when it would have reached our shores. But here, the, the curious thing about this pandemic is that it originated in China and then it spread to Iran as the second country that suffered most. And then it jumped into northern Italy. And that's the moment when it was transformed into a global crisis and you had the panic in Europe and elsewhere and if one government after another instituted a lockdown. And a strikingly wealthy part of Italy as well. Yeah, exactly. And global warming has never worked like that. I mean, you have now, clearly, obviously, you have climate disasters in northern countries, but that's after decades of disasters in the global south. So the, temp the, the, the temporality is completely the other way around. If the states of the north are prepared to implement these dramatic measures to protect their own states, or at least the wealthier classes in those, those states, why have we not then seen action to prevent the initial outbreak of a pandemic like COVID-19, which was, after all, a, a known threat, if not one that was very widely discussed outside of scientific and health policy circles? 
this is, I guess, the core argument of my book, is that the similarities with the climate crisis are, in fact, more striking than the differences. And one of the similarities here is that if governments in the global north would address the drivers of new pandemics, they would have to confront deeply entrenched economic structures and processes and class interests. And they are as as little inclined to do that when it comes to zoonotic spillover or the production of, of new infectious diseases as they are when it comes to global heating. So if our governments were to, to say, we're going to deal with the roots of this problem and make sure that we don't have a new pandemic in a, in a few years and a kind of perpetual uh, situation of, of new diseases and lockdowns and, and all this, we're, we're going to have to actually reverse deforestation and we're going to have to completely abolish wildlife trade and things like that. That would require very serious challenging of economic interests, perhaps not as serious as, as the challenging of economic interests implied by, by the mitigation of climate change. But still, deforestation is so deeply interwoven with consumption and production patterns in the global north that it, it's not something that, that governments would, uh, would want to do. It's your view, am I right in thinking, that any such measures are so much as the lockdown inherently anti-capitalist in their logic, in that they would be devastating in terms of indicators like GDP and so on, that there is just simply no possibility of dealing with the climate crisis under capitalist social relations? I'm hesitant to say that we have to axiomatically get rid of capitalist social relations to have any kind of climate action, because it seems to be a recipe for defeat almost tautologically, because we don't know how to transcend capitalist social relations tomorrow, and we need to have climate action. Well, we, need, we needed to have it yesterday and, and, and uh, years and decades ago. So I wouldn't put it that way. I wouldn't say one solution revolution and the, the premise for any kind of climate action is a socialist society. But I would say that any kind of serious climate action, as in rapid reduction of emissions and shutting down the fossil fuel industry, necessitates, by definition, confrontation with certain capitalist interests. This is why these measures don't happen. And that kind of confrontation can potentially lead beyond the capitalist property relations, just as this pandemic, in a sense, suspended capitalist property relations, because all of a sudden it was the state, in many countries at least, that decided what you could buy or not, where, what, what shops, what factories would stay open or not, based on whether they were essential or not, not whether they were profitable or not, which was a kind of suspension of how capitalism normally operates. And that, that was inherent in the treatment of this outbreak. And likewise, any kind of actual effort to slow down global heating would require a similar type of confrontation. It would be deeper, it would be more profound, it would be more thoroughgoing, and it could potentially set in motion a process of transition away from capitalist social relations. Not necessarily, I don't think that's logically necessary, that a society without fossil fuels would intrinsically, by definition, have to be a socialist society. I don't think that we can know that for sure. But the moment of a transition would absolutely require a confrontation with capitalist class interests. I mean, just consider a country that's not often talked about in these contexts. France is not known for being a country with a lot of fossil fuels, but the single largest capitalist corporation in France is Total, which is one of the largest oil and gas companies in the world. That company, as everyone knows, has to cease to exist as such as part of the transition away from fossil fuels. Now, what would it mean for people in France to say that the largest capitalist corporation that we have in this country has to cease to exist? 
that is by definition a confrontation with capitalist class interests that has to be part of any transition. Will that lead to socialism? Well, not necessarily, but perhaps possibly. Around this question of forcing governments and, and forcing corporations to, to act in ways which seem to contradict a capitalist logic, there's this continual invocation of the industrial mobilisation of the Western allies during the Second World War when talking about both climate and, and the COVID-19 crisis. But in the book, you instead develop the idea of, of thinking about this in terms of ecological war communism. So could you talk a bit about the history of war communism and, and the Russian Civil War and why this might be a better analogy for the kind of ecological politics that we need. As several scholars have pointed out, there are problems with the Second World War analogy. So the idea that we should do as the US in particular did during the Second World War and focus all our efforts on shifting away from fossil fuels as if we were facing a deadly enemy on the scale of Third Reich. And one of the problems with this analogy is that the dominant classes in the US were essentially on board with that transition or with a conversion of production for military purposes that, that was more or less in line with their interests. And the US waged the Second World War to defend the status quo, the business as usual, not to transcend it. And the war mobilization entailed an enormous consumption of fossil fuels. For all these reasons, this seems to be a poor analogy. Now, the history of war communism in Russia between 19. 18, let's say, in 1921 is, of course, very complicated and not a very pleasant history because it was one of, it was a moment of catastrophic collapse of Russian society and slaughter. So it's not like I'm saying that these were the happy days of war communism. Let's all live again like Russian peasants and workers did in 1920. That would be clearly insane. The value of the analogy is that in Russia in 1917 and in the years before, you had a situation of emergency where society was falling apart because of the First World War, and the Bolsheviks positioned themselves as the ones who could do something about this emergency, because they said that we are the ones that can end the war, end Russian involvement in the First World War, and strike at the capitalist class interests that keep this catastrophic war going. And that's exactly what they did, of course. They quit the war, got out of it, and started dismantling capitalist class power. And then they got another war thrown at them, namely the Civil War, when the whites attacked Bolshevik power with the support of uh, more than a dozen capitalist nations. So the emergency almost became chronic, with a new war and even deeper social collapse. And this has a kind of metaphorical correspondence with the situation we're facing with deepened emergencies. And how do we get out of these emergencies and uh, not get bogged down in them even further? Well, I think we will never get out of these emergencies unless we find a way to seize power from the dominant class interests that keep this catastrophe going and just exacerbates it day after day. And the Bolsheviks did that with some success, but clearly, as I, as I am at pains to, to point out, they committed inexcusable mistakes and excesses in the process that I, I obviously don't want to copy. But there are some aspects of world communism that are interesting in this context, and one of them is that world communism was the, the only period in the history of the Soviet Union and, and any workers' state's experience that was completely without fossil fuels. That's obviously not because the Bolsheviks did not want to burn coal. 
or oil, it was because Soviet Russia was deprived of all coal and oil resources because the territories where these reserves were located were occupied by the white forces and by the external interventions. But they managed to survive and adapt their economy very quickly to using traditional energy sources, notably wood. Now, here you just see a difference to the Second World War experience that entailed massive expansion of actual fossil fuel consumption, whereas during war communism, the Soviets had to learn to get by without any fossil fuels whatsoever, which is precisely what we need to learn to do as well. We just need to learn to do it in a, in a very different way from how they learned to do it. But, uh, I mean, everything is different. We wouldn't use wood now. We would use sun and wind, but we would, much like them, have to learn to do without fossil fuels in no time. As in from, I mean, clearly we're not going to get rid of fossil fuels by 95% one year to another, as was the case in Russia when they lost all fossil fuel reserves in late 1918. But it will have to be done very, very fast. And we will have to, and this is also a difference between the, the Second World War and the war communism analogies, we will have to have a transition period that then changes the economy permanently. We transition to a situation where we have economies permanently without fossil fuels. Whereas in the, in the Soviet experience, we see a turn to productivism and, and a highly fossil fuel intensive economy. Yes, 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 of course. And you know, as soon as the war was over, they got their coal and oil back and burnt it as much as they could. But with all its terrible drawbacks, the Russian Revolution changed property relations fundamentally for a very long time in Russia, whereas the Second World War just defended business as usual. That was, from the American standpoint, what the war was about. So partly this is an intentional provocation, but it's, it's a way to say for me that we need to face the extreme nature of the emergency that we are going into. And it's so late in the day and we have damaged the climate system so deeply that extreme measures will have to be taken to get out of this emergency. Now, of course, I try to, to pinpoint some more concrete demands for how this can be done, which is not about anything about militarizing labor or or doing some of the crazier things that the Bolsheviks did during the, the Civil War, but a completely different kind of measures. But the point with using war communism as an analogy is to say that we are in a situation of extreme chronic emergency and no ordinary kind of politics will take us out of this situation. I suppose another thing that's striking and interesting about that contrast between the experience of war communism in the Russian Civil War and World War II, does it raise questions about what is actually possible and issues around political pessimism in, in the face of the climate catastrophe? Because a sort of lesson that's often taken from the Second World War is the remorseless logic of material, the fact that the side with the resources win. And Nazi Germany was obviously a relatively resource-poor belligerent in that conflict as compared with the United States and the British Empire and, and so on. What does the fact that the Bolsheviks were able to defy that kind of logic and win in the face of opponents with much greater material resources, what does that, do you think, tell us about, about what is possible? <laughs> That's a good question. It's actually a remarkable aspect of the Civil War that I hadn't really thought much about before I wrote this and read up a little bit more on war communism. I mean, I'm not an expert on military history, but I would like to see a similar instance of a country without fossil fuels, fighting against armies from more than a dozen countries with access to all the fossil fuels in the world and still prevailing. 
it's quite well known that a fundamental reason for why the, the Red Army managed to defeat the White Guards and various inter interventions was that there was persistent popular support for the Red Army compared to popular support for the White Guards. Obviously, there was a lot of discontent and unhappiness with Bolshevik rule in those years, including various strikes and popular uprisings against Bolshevism. But in the rural areas of Russia, where this war largely played out, peasants tended to rally to the Red Army and become extremely exasperated by the White Guards because the Red Army at this point in time allowed the peasants to keep their land, whereas the Whites wanted to return the land to the landowners and therefore lost whatever popular support they could establish in their areas. So the Civil War, as it played out, was a desperate and eventually surprisingly successful attempt to beat an enemy that was infinitely more powerful and resourceful. And Trotsky and Lenin and the others who waged this fight were pretty clear that our main resource in this battle is revolutionary enthusiasm or whatever you want to call it, even though this enthusiasm evaporated as the war went on and as the working class and the peasantry got, at least the working class, the industrial working class almost disappeared from the, the political scene in, in Russia during those years because the, the collapse was so deep. But still, people were ready to fight against the counter-revolutionary forces. And yeah, I mean, you can say that that is a testimony to the possibility of defeating superior enemies. I mean, there are lots of, of cases, obviously, in, in history where materially inferior enemies have, have defeated their superiors. I know, Vietnam or whatever anti-colonial war of liberation has had that kind of, of logic. So maybe there's nothing unique about the Russian civil war about it. It's just that it's, it's striking that they fought with no fossil fuels at a time when wars were won by means of coal, essentially. In terms of the mass mobilization, both in the case of war communism, but also in the case of, of the Second World War, do you think that the COVID-19 crisis may, to some extent, give a foretaste of that in the sense that it may possibly lay the ground for popular support for very aggressive interventionist measures and popular mobilization in order to combat the climate crisis. And I appreciate a lot of people don't like the analogy because the lockdown in many respects means a demobilization of society rather than mobilization. You're right on the last point that I think we shouldn't see the lockdown as a model for our politics to put it that way, because a lockdown is such an incredibly unpleasant thing and people don't want to be living under house arrest for very good reason. I found it quite uh, frustrating to live under lockdown in, in Berlin and uh, would much rather have spent the, the, strictly from a personal, private, egoistic standpoint, this spring in Sweden without a lockdown. So it's not like, oh, this wonderful uh, spring of lockdown shows us how we're going to deal with climate change. In fact, I think we should put the case precisely the other way around. One, a climate transition does not in any way presuppose social distancing or isolation, but to the contrary, more public, more socially oriented ways of life, more public transport, more spending time with each other together rather than sitting in front of our screens would be part of that transition. And also we should make the case that if we don't want to have a future with another pandemic every third year and sequences of lockdowns of this kind, we need to have radical climate action because global heating will necessarily cause more pandemics. We know that almost for a certainty that there will be more zoonotic diseases the, the higher temperatures get. 
at least over the next three, four, five, six decades, something like that. So the lesson to take away from this crisis is that we can have state intervention into market systems that draw a lot of popular support when we are in an emergency. But the difference with the climate emergency and the kind of politics that's needed there is that the public interventions will have to target the drivers of those problems. And I think another lesson from this episode is also that, just as you say, the argument that has been made against climate action for decades, that people will never support the kind of disruption and discomfort that that kind of action would imply. They will just turn away from it. That argument is completely shattered. Because what we've seen in Europe and other parts of the world as well is people rallying behind their governments when they have done this kind of quite uh, uncomfortable interventions into business as usual because they have made a convincing case that this is about saving lives. And exactly that case could be made on the climate front as well. It's just that the nature of the interventions and the measures would have to be different and they would not have to target citizens in general but the specific drivers of global heating. On that point, on the increasing prevalence of pandemics that we might see in the future, to your mind, does that mean to some extent we may have an even shorter window than we thought in terms of doing something about the climate crisis? Because as you talk about in the book, one of the consequences of the lockdowns has been to effectively freeze the climate movement. Obviously, Extinction Rebellion was very active before the lockdown was imposed and and, and may have been on the verge of ramping up to a higher level. And the general digitalization of activism that you talk about rarely seems to be to the broad benefit of the left? Politically, one of the most disastrous effects of this lockdown, this pandemic, was the, precisely that it just completely killed the climate movement. And whether it can uh, re-emerge and, uh, and revive and regain the momentum from 2019 is still an open question. We, we haven't seen anything in that direction yet. One of the wonderful things about the Black Lives Matter uprising is that it finally takes people out into the streets again. Without the pandemic, that those the, the crowds would probably have been much bigger in the U.S. and European streets as well. I hope the climate movement can uh, rebound. The problem as such is obviously not going away. There is a risk that this half year or, or maybe more, maybe longer, we don't know, will at the end of it look like we've, we've lost a lot of time because the climate movement just suddenly vanished from the scene. On the other hand, there are contradictory processes at work with a very severe crisis in the oil industry and a crisis in the airline industry and and other industries that are very central to the climate problem. So we don't know yet if this pandemic will turn out to be a short gain, speaking in terms of whether we lose or gain time in the battle against global warming or if it's a loss of time because the climate movement lost so much. I think it's too early to tell, but I'm itching to, to hear reports about new climate camps being planned or, or, or the, the climate strikes coming back or something like that. But so far, there hasn't been anything of it as far as I'm aware, which is deeply, deeply unfortunate, of course. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.